0: My name is Ann, and I'm an alcoholic. Thanks. Um, I'm from Waco, Texas, and as is customary in my home group, um, my sobriety date is January 27, 1974, and I'm will be eternally grateful to the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, I'd like to first take a moment to um, thank the committee for inviting me to Nebraska. I've never been to middle America, and um, I was really excited about coming up into this part of the country. I I, um, am kind of a strange bird. Um, I get real into vegetation. We hunt and fish and all that kind of stuff. and, And I was real intrigued by being in this part of the country just to see what the countryside looked like. Um, I'd also like to thank Mike, who has been, Krista was my hostess, has picked me up and, and brought me to the hotel and kind of showed me around and did all that kind of stuff for me. And Mike's the one been driving me around on my grand tour um, to see your beautiful city. And, and it was kind of funny yesterday when I was in the car with Krista. She said it's so different to see your own city through the eyes of another person. Uh, I'm real interested in architecture. The city that I live in is, a, they call it Bethlehem um on the Brazos. Um, it's a real strong Southern Baptist-held community, and we have a lot of old buildings, and it's just beautiful. And um, I'm fairly new to Waco, and our state conference was held, our young people state conference was held in our city uh, two weeks ago. And during the process of a year, it was like all these young people would say, what can we tell these people? uh... waco has to offer and some of those kids had never i call them kids now but the young people um, had never been to the tourist bureau in waco they had no idea what their city has to offer and um, you all have a lot to be real grateful for here this is a beautiful place to live your speaker last night talked about how lucky you are to live where you live and after seeing some of the things that i've seen mike took me and. And Krista uh, and Jimmy took me down last night to the, the Old Market. And we don't really have some of the things that you all have um, to be grateful for. One of the other things that I'd also like to remind you is please, um, you may be the one thing you, that, that I'd like to impress on you as young people in Alcoholics Anonymous is that you may be the only walking copy of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous another individual ever sees. And one of the things that has been so beneficial to me throughout my sobriety is any anytime I travel away from my home group, I buy tapes. Um, and I've passed on more tapes than, than I care to think about, really, but uh, you know, support your tapers that are here this weekend and buy tapes of the speakers that you hear. Um, also, there's an ice cream social after the meeting. And uh, these guys that have worked on this conference have worked long and hard for a year to put this conference together for you. And uh, tomorrow night, when you come back for the speaker tomorrow night, Craig S. is wonderful, too. Um, Bring a friend with you. Uh, I'm supposed to tell you a little bit about what happened, what it was like, and what it's like now. And to me, you know, where in in my part of the country, you have to qualify. They call it qualifying yourself. And I find that real bizarre. Um, I can't imagine anybody masquerading in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous as an alcoholic. Um, All of my drinking wasn't a nightmare. I had a lot of fun drinking. Um, I got to a point in my drinking where I was no longer using the chemical, the chemical was using me. Um, In the 12 and 12, the last paragraph in the 12 and 12, it talks about, um, under the lash of alcoholism, we were driven to Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, And when I came to the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, I was beaten, defeated, helpless, and hopeless. You people taught me how to love myself so that I could love you. Um, I'm also a real serious crybaby. I have a real hard time with my story Um, not crying, and, and I can't smoke in here, and that's one of the things that keep me from crying. You know, we all have little parades and faces that we put on when we're trying not to deal with the feelings that are going on, and smoking is one of those things for me. So y'all are going to have to excuse me if I get too emotional. Um, I uh, started drinking real young. I have no idea when I actually started drinking. I never knew that that was going to be a prerequisite to coming into the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, my father was a drunk, and he wasn't a real pretty drunk, but he was a happy drunk. Uh, he did things when he got drunk. He was a cattle auctioneer, and, and um, what he would do would be he'd go to these cattle auctions and he'd come home riding a pony, you know, and, and drunk down the street. Um, he, I, my dad never beat on me, you know. I, he wasn't an angry, hateful drunk. He was a happy drunk. Uh, but it didn't make for a real happy home life. I, I love all these buzzwords we hear in Alcoholics Anonymous today, as a result of treatment-oriented lingo type stuff like a uh, dysfunctional family. Um, I had a real problem coming into Alcoholics Anonymous labeling things. And that seems to be and has always been a deal in, in Alcoholics Anonymous is we label things. Like, for instance, a good example of what I'm talking about is they would ask me in the hospital where I went uh, to get sober uh, what I was feeling. And, you know, I'd say I'm pissed off. Or I'd say, uh, I'm glad. I knew two things when I came to the program Alcoholics Anonymous. I knew mad and I knew glad. And that's all I knew. I didn't know sadness. I didn't know disappointment. I didn't know fear, anxiety, um, all of these other words that, that, that help us to define what we're feeling and what we're going through. Um, my dad was a big part. I, it's so hard for me to tell my story without telling their story, too. It's um. I, I didn't come from a bad home. I came from a, a relatively stable home life, but it was dysfunctional, quote unquote. Um, my mother was an Al-Anon and a rather crazy Al-Anon. She wasn't. Um, she did the best she knew how to do. You know. Um, I have a real problem with some of the other twelve-step programs that we have today. I came into the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, duly addicted. Back in the early 70s when it wasn't cool, Um, now it's very rare to sit in a meeting with anybody who's a quote-unquote pure alcoholic. But back when I got sober, I got sober at the old 24-hour club in Houston, and um, they they talked about 30 years of liquid insanity. They talked about John Barleycorn. Who the hell is John Barleycorn? You know, I thought the way those old-timers spoke about John Barleycorn and, you know, raised their hands and looked as though they were in awe of John Barleycorn, I thought John Barleycorn was the president of AA. I didn't know any better, you know. Um, I was 18 years old and beaten and broken when I came to the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, I was duly addicted, barbiturates, heroin, and alcohol. I used both chemicals to get off the one or the other. If I was, what I'd do would be, I'd get strung out on drugs for a while, and in order to kick the drugs, I'd start drinking, and I'd drink until I'd pass out, drink until I'd pass out, drink until I passed out. And um, that's how I'd kick a heroin habit or a barbiturate habit. And eventually, you know, because I didn't know how to deal with reality, I had to continue drinking. And it wouldn't take me long for the drinking to, to take me down and carry me and bury me. So I'd have to get off of the alcohol, and I'd get off of the alcohol with Valium, Librium, you know. Two and all, second all, anything and everything that I could get to get off of the alcohol. The alcohol seemed to devastate me physically quicker and faster than the drugs did, but I didn't really care. I always have kind of labeled myself a junkie. It never mattered to me as long as whatever chemical I was taking got me out and away from wherever I was and I didn't have to deal with those feelings. Um, I got pregnant, um, with my first child when I was 17 years old, as the direct result of drinking, I was a wino, a winette, That's what they called me at home. Um, you know, I, that was the deal. You know, I, I got sober right in the, at the end of the Vietnam War. I went through the early 60s and the early 70s, or the middle 60s and the early 70s, when all the guys were coming home from Vietnam all screwed up. And, uh, you know, I lived through that era, the hippies, the peas, the love, and, you know, the, let's all get in a van and go to Woodstock. And um, <clears throat> there were some good times and there were a lot of bad times. And towards the end of my drinking, um, there wasn't any doubt in my mind that I was going to die on those streets. Um, my father, in the meantime, had come to the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, and he had been attempting to stay sober through the 12 steps of AA since I was about seven. And which is 10 years, and um, he was never able to stay sober. He'd get three, three months, six months, nine months, you know. And um, he, being in the line of business that he was in, he'd get around all that drinking and he'd sh- soon drink again. Um, so I, I didn't have a whole lot of faith in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, but when I turned 18 years old and the bottom began to fall out for me. Um, my dad had been sober about three years, and it was the first time he'd stayed sober. And I wasn't aware of it until after I'd been sober for a number of years, um, that my dad had given me phone numbers, you know, and said if you ever decide you don't ever decide you don't want to live the way you're living, and those kind of comments that Al-Anon's make to us. Um, and it subtly left pamphlets and things of that nature around on my house. I never remembered any of that until I'd been sober for years and years, and I got to looking back. Um, I truly believe that God intervened on me. Um, I also need to let you all know from the very get-go here, when I came into the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, I considered myself an agnatheist. somewhere in between an agnostic and an atheist. I was kind of afraid to say I did and kind of afraid to say I didn't. You know, so I was right in the middle there. I I wouldn't profess to be an atheist, but I'd sure get in there on the agnostic side, you know, and get my deal in there. Um, I was 17 years old when I had my first child. My husband and I were both, I got married to the the child's father. Um, My mom, I have to back up here, my dad, you know, being the happy drunk that he was, uh, my dad never really had a lot of influence in our life. It was mostly my mom. My mom tried to control me. Um, I was the acid connection in my high school. Uh, my nickname at that time was Sunshine, you know, and I mean, I just kind of lived in Mr. Rogers' neighborhood, you know. Um, I was a cheerleader, I, you know, made the honor roll. Um, I, I studied hard. I was a good kid. I wasn't a bad kid. I never hit the jails, prison, you know, I was never busted. Um, I had a real hard time listening to some of the war stories when I got sober in 1973 um, because I didn't relate. Um, I'm just so grateful for the teachers that were there for me when I did come to the program. Um, I wouldn't be alive today if it weren't for my teachers. Um, <clears throat> my mom, on the other hand, had all she could handle trying to raise us four kids. She was a school teacher. And back in the early 60s, her income was like $99 every couple of weeks, you know. She didn't make a whole lot of money. Uh, we weren't poverty-stricken because my dad was one of those kind of drunks that he worked periodically. And uh, when he worked, he made damn good money. And when he worked and made damn good money, we ate real good. And then on those periods when he would drink and drink hard and party hard, uh, we had beans and cornbread. I was raised on a farm. Um... You know, I wasn't mentally prepared for the road or the path that drugs and alcohol, the devastation that drugs and alcohol brought into my life. Um, I also wasn't mentally prepared because I stopped, I stopped growing when I started using. I also wasn't mentally prepared for life and what life was going to bring me. I wasn't prepared for the war in Vietnam. I wasn't prepared to say goodbye to... Um, the people that 1971 made me say goodbye to. Um, but I was doing life with the only tools that I had to do life with, you know. And and it was necessary for me to do what I had to do. I'm here today and I'm alive today. And I'm alive because there was somebody there with their hand down. I love on the back of our literature where it says, I am responsible. Um, I get pretty irresponsible today about a whole lot of things in my life, but to me, the disease of alcoholism is deadly. I take the program of Alcoholics Anonymous deadly serious. Um, For me today, there's one thing in my sobriety or one statement or one feeling that has never changed from the day I walked through the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous, and that is, if I drink today, I will die. Uh, One drink today will lead me back to the needle, will lead me back to the Valium, will lead me back to whatever. You know, one Valium will lead me back to the bottle, whichever terminology you want to put on it. And I don't want to die today. Alcoholics Anonymous has given me so many miracles that it would take me the rest of the weekend to tell you about the miracles that have happened in my life. you know, I continued to drink that wine and hang out in those back seats and leave after the football game was over and, and hang out with all the trash. You know, it was like I had a radar for the losers. I, it didn't matter. My mom used, to, when I was a little kid, you know, I'd bring home the dog that had no hope of living, you know. Uh, I'd bring home the cat that was vicious, you know, it, and I, I seemed to radiate myself to the losers in the world. And, 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 and you could line up a hundred people and dress them all the same way, and the, the, the homicidal maniac in the crowd would be the one my radar would go to, you know. And um, that progressed on into my adulthood. I, I don't know when I, or even if I have today become an adult. Um, I didn't have a clue as to what I wanted to be when I grew up. I was years sober, still driving down the road going, what do I want to be when I grow up? You know. Um, Today, I'm not real sure I know what I want to be when I grow up. I know some things in my life that don't work and haven't worked and aren't ever going to work, you know. Um, My mom, bless her heart, um, my mom was the kind of person that that, um, she tried her best to control me, you know. Um, I went out one night, and, and I was always able to manipulate my mom. Um, I could look my mother square in the eyes and tell her a bold-faced lie, and she'd buy it every time. Um, can you give me some water, please? Um, I went out one night with what later became my husband. But uh, I went out one night with him, and, and back in the early 60s or in the middle 60s, these things called peasant blouses were real popular. And they're like blouses that have elastic at the at the top up here and elastic in the shoulders and we'd take them and that was during the bra burning days too so we didn't have on underclothing either but we'd take those shirts and pull them down straight across you know and um, anyway we'd been out parking and I came in the house and I was plenty stoned and and we'd been drinking Boone's Farm wine and smoking dope from Cambodia and um, my mother was a librarian and she had huge eyes and she wore pretty thick glasses and it made them look like they were this big when you're stoned on acid and uh, she looked like Mr. Magoo and um, I came through the door one night and I had real long hair, it had not been cut in, in I don't know how many hundreds of years but it was really long and, and I'd have to get out of the car and blow my hair around in the wind to get the dope smoke out of it and stuff and chew all the gum and, you know, certs and all that kind of stuff because my mother was very observant and, um, I walked through the door, and my mother was sitting in the easy chair across the room from me, staring at me and um, My deal was is i'd hit the front door, run straight for the bathroom, brush my hair, and jump in the sh- I mean, brush my teeth, and jump in the shower, you know, get all that smell off of me. My mother didn't smoke, and she didn't drink, and I did both and when you don't do those things, your senses are much more aware of those around you and so, you know, they used deadly words. They had quit hitting on me years earlier. They knew beating me. They couldn't hurt me. You know, I mean, they could beat me all they wanted. That never bothered me. Uh, what bothered me was those two magic words, you're grounded. That always bothered me. That was a real good cure. Um, I, You know, I crawled out the window. I did all the things those bad kids do. You know, I crawled out the window, slipped keys to my boyfriends, you know, whatever it took to get what I wanted. Um, I came through the door that night, and my mother looked at me, and she said, Ann-Denise, and I immediately knew I was in trouble because she called me by my middle name, and uh, she said, Ann-Denise, and I looked over at her, which you don't do when you're stoned because you see them road maps, you know, and um, I said, yes, ma'am, and uh, she said, your shirt is on wrong side out, and it was one of those instantaneous, sobering moments. I kind of glanced down, but I didn't want to bust myself, you know, so I just did one of those real quick checks. Sure enough, it was wrong side out. And uh, (coughs) so it's immediate, you know, you got to regroup here. I'm in serious trouble. I'm fixing to get busted. And it's so incredible to me how quick we can be mentally, how our faculties can return. I mean, just like that. And I looked up at her, and I immediately started crying, and I said, I can't believe, Mom, you let me go out of the house like this. And she bought it. You know, she, she started apologizing to me for letting me go out of the house like that. And, you know, it was kind of like life was an easy street after that. You know, I, I got all full of myself that if I can be, you know, that bold... And she buy it, I knew it wasn't going to be any big deal, you know, it just really wasn't going to be a big deal. My dad stayed passed out drunk most of the time, so I never had to be worried about what he was going to catch me doing. He'd get real, you know, hard to deal with when he was sober, but it wouldn't take much before he'd get drunk again, so we didn't really have to worry about that. I wound up married and uh, with a child by the time, before I turned 18. When I came into the program, it was just before my 19th birthday, and I was still married to the same guy and uh, had two children by then. Um, as far as a, a drinking story goes, that's about the best I can do. I, I, I don't really understand the mentality behind having to qualify myself. I wouldn't be here tonight um, or in any room of Alcoholics Anonymous if I didn't have to be here, you know. Um, What happened was, um, after I was pregnant, I was five months pregnant with my little boy, with my second child, when I found out I was pregnant, Um, because I was so into my addiction during that period of time, from January to July, um, I was puking every day. You know, um, I couldn't keep anything on my stomach. Everything I had ran out of me. Everything I, I drank, ate, anything. Um, alcohol was killing me. I was drinking real, real heavy then. I I know women in the program today who have children with alcohol syndrome, and I just count my blessings and, you know, praise St. Jude every day because neither one of my children were physically affected by my drinking and uh, my drug addiction. And I was, like I said, five months pregnant and in very heavy in my addiction when I found out I was pregnant with my second child. Um, my dad, I was not living at home anymore, needless to say, and, and uh, my dad had gotten sober and stayed sober in the program. And uh, I knew some changes had begun to take place at my home because I did go home every once in a while. Um, I was into that part of your addiction where you believe that God is Monty Hall and, you know, it's you're down on your knees you know, throwing up and you're saying God, if you'll just get me out of this uh, you know, and, and eventually you get out of it and you forget about all of those promises that you made to God, the 10% you're going to send to the church and you know, the uh attendance at Sunday school and, you know, being a good person and paying your bills and all that kind of stuff. Well, I, you know, as soon as I wasn't feeling bad anymore, you know, that that porcelain throne, that porcelain God. You know, a toilet, when you're throwing up and you've been throwing up, it, I mean, before you throw up, a toilet is a filthy thing. You know, I mean, it's just a nasty thing. Uh, but when you're sick and you're laying on that floor and the world is spinning, you know, and you've been sick for several hours, that porcelain is so cool you know I mean it's so cool and it feels so good on your throat you know I mean I I would just love it I would cherish that toilet Uh, that's the kind of drunk I was I was the most disgusting drunk I've ever seen I've only met one woman in my whole eighteen years or seventeen years and nine months in this program that was more disgusting than me and um, what happened was I came home from the hospital with that child. I left the hospital when he was born. The day he was born, that evening, I walked out of the hospital with a $100 bill and walked three blocks in these little fuzzy purple house shoes, in a house coat, down to my connections house to get loaded. And um, <clears throat> came back to the hospital and he was born. The only factor that was involved, as far as my drinking goes, I believe, um, when he was born was that he was born premature. I was trying to kick a dope habit. And um, he was born premature. And uh, so he was real lightweight. He only weighed like four pounds, six ounces or something. He was real tiny. And uh, so he had to stay in the hospital, and that was fine with me. I didn't want him anyway. And uh, so I left the hospital to go home. And um, ten days later, I got to go back and pick him up. Well, I brought him home, and I was really angry at God that he allowed this to happen. He allowed me to be pregnant right in the middle of what was supposed to be the best years of my life. And I already had this little two-year-old that I couldn't control. So, consequently, this, this baby that I brought home from the hospital was seriously neglected the first six months of his life. I truly believe today that that child would not be alive, would not be alive, and I would be sitting in TDC, Texas Department of Corrections for the rest of my life for child child abuse or neglect or even murder. Um, My little two-year-old would go make his bottles and feed him. She thought he was a dolly. She'd grab him and pull him out of, you know those swing-o-matic things that you can crank up and put the baby in and it swings? I remember getting out of bed in the morning and taking that little sack of potatoes out of that bassinet and sticking it in that swing and cranking that swing, and that's about all I remember about that next six months after he was born from July to December, is I remember ever so often picking it up out of that sack and sticking it in that swing of matic and ever so often when I'd walk to the kitchen to get a drink, you know, cranking that swing again when it stopped. Um, my two-year-old would grab him and pull him out of that swing. How he lived through all of that stuff, I'll never know. You, you would, I mean, he's a whoppin'. 169, 70 pounds, 6 foot 3 boy now. I mean, man, he's, he's good size. When I look at him today, I, you know, there's no way I couldn't count my blessings. There is no way. Um, there's no way under God's green earth I would ever be able to repay to Alcoholics Anonymous the things, that the, the miracles, the wonderful, um, grace, grace that AA has given me. Um, I called my father in December of nineteen seventy three and um it was it was I believe that it was a moment of clarity. I believe that it was a spiritual awakening, as Dr. Bob and Bill Wilson describe in the appendix. um I went to bed the night before I had plenty of drugs and plenty of alcohol at that time in my life. I'm not going to do a fifth step from the podium, but at that time in my life, there was nothing. And I mean nothing that I wouldn't do to support my habit um, and that I hadn't already done. I had become the kind of person my parents would not let me play with when I was growing up. Everything I said to myself, oh, I'll never do that, I had already done 10 times over and was taking that sledgehammer that we as addicts do and making that hole deeper, you know. Um, I believe I didn't have any problem and don't have any problem telling new people, you know, don't believe that this is your bottom. We can always make our bottom lower. Um, I've hit many bottoms in sobriety. Um, I picked up the phone in December of 1973 and called my father because I knew nobody else to call. And got my father over to the house and I, I woke up that morning with that moment of clarity. I woke up that moment knowing. That if I took one drink, if I took one volume, if I took one hit off a joint, one spoon of dough, I was going to die. Now, why I knew that, I can't even begin to tell you today, other than it was just a direct intervention by God. I knew that if I drank that day, I was going to die. And you see, that was right after... Um, The DEA had been formed, Drug Enforcement Agency had been formed in Houston, and and, um, there was a lot of real, real bad dope coming over from Mexico, and there was some serious stuff happening in in the using community at that point in time, and and I knew that I was going to die without an, an ounce of doubt in my mind. I had totally surrendered. I woke up at that moment of clarity. Total defeat, total calamity, and completed mission um i call my father and and um you know that's every parent's nightmare that's every parent's nightmare i'm a parent today of two teenage children uh adults young adults Uh, my daughter's 19 she'll soon be 20 and my son is 18 as of thursday and i got my parents over to the house and you know and i said mom and dad i've lied and cheated and stole from you Uh, There's no reason to candy-coat any of this. I can't lie to you anymore. I'm hooked on heroin and alcohol, and I don't know what to do. And if I died drunk tomorrow, if I died tomorrow, I would always be grateful to the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. And if there are any parents in the room tonight, please hear what I'm saying right now. What happened when I made that statement to my parents is what saved my life my dad didn't jump up and say oh my god you know what are the neighbors going to think how could you do this to us or any of those things my dad looked at me and said are you sick how long has it been are you physically detoxing and from that he basically 12-stepped me the only way i believe that a father can or a family member can 12-step another aa member and uh, or a potential member and um he assured me that i was going to be okay he told me that he loved me in spite of what i had done uh and he knew somebody that could help me and they proceeded to take me to saint joseph's hospital and uh that's where the miracle began for me um in 1973 they didn't have the treatment centers and the treatment modalities that they have today Um, It was a pretty wicked situation in those years. Um, I look around the rooms today, at, at the rooms in young people's groups and in young people's conferences all over the world, and I wonder if you have any idea how lucky you are, you know. When I got sober in Alcoholics Anonymous, the only kind of diseases that we had or the only things that happened to us, Ajax or penicillin would take care of, you know. Uh, you guys are dying out there on the streets from diseases that can't be cured, you know? You all have drugs and chemicals today that one smoke, one puff will kill you. When I got clean and sober, the worst that could happen to us was VD. You know, I mean, that was a major disaster. The worst that could happen to us is we'd wind up with a habit. Um, The young people today are out there on those streets dying after one and two puffs, after having their first sexual encounter. You know, that's real scary to me. Um, I'm so grateful that I didn't have to throw my life away. When I got sober in Alcoholics Anonymous in 1974, I went into the old 24-hour club. And the majority of those old farts that were in there were 60 and over. You know, they had one foot in the grave and the other one slowly sliding in. And, you know, I thought they were the fuzzballs in the navel of life. You know, the things that they did for fun was play dominoes. Well, I didn't know how to play 42 and moon, and I didn't want to learn. I was 18 years old, and I wanted to learn how to live. But they just kind of shined me on and shook their head and said, Yeah, Annie, it'll be okay. You know, it'll be okay. And I'm so grateful that those old timers in 1973 knew how to love me when I couldn't love myself. I'm so grateful when I look around the room today and I see the amount of intolerance and the amount of lack of gratitude is what I call it, um, lack of concern and care that I got sober when I got sober because they went to any length. You never heard a no I'm too busy to make that 12 step call. You know. Um my dad took me down to St. Joseph's Hospital. I'm going to try to stay off my soapbox about that. Um my dad took me down to St. Joseph's Hospital and it was a psychiatric hospital and and it was a little different than what we have available to us today. They they were just finding out that you could certify somebody in being an AA counselor. So they were, I mean, an uh, um, alcoholism counselor. Uh, they were trying all kinds of new things. We had we had primal screen therapy, gestalt therapy, role-playing, shock therapy, um, you know, I mean, they did all kinds of bizarre things to us trying to determine what to do to get us sober. We were guinea pigs, you know. Um, I was in this hospital with certified nuts, multiple personality people, you know. Um, today, we're kind of segregated a little bit differently when we go into treatment, and um, maybe that's good, maybe it's not. I don't really know. I know for me, that was a real eye-opener, because I I pretty much, even though I was out there in that drug world, you know, in that alcoholism, um, I I lived a pretty sheltered life compared to what I met and what I saw in that hospital when I went in there. Uh, they sent me to the fourth floor, which is the psych ward where people are screaming and crying and, you know, ripping theirself up and mutilating themselves, and all these bizarre things that happen. And I met some very bizarre people in that hospital. One of them, <clears throat> we, we nicknamed the, the maestro. He was a multiple personality and one of his personalities, he could play, uh, classical music on the piano. He was a pianist, uh, a concert pianist in this other personality. At Bach, Chopin, you know Mozart. He he actually played, and it was we were all doing the Thorazine shuffle then. That was one of their drug, their drug rehabilitation things that they used then, you know. And they give you that stuff, and it, you just kind of shuffle down the hallway like little ducks in a row. And whenever the maestro would come down out of his room, he'd kind of straighten his back, and he now he. I want y'all to bear in mind that we were all wearing green paper pajamas. They didn't give you anything that you could hang yourself with, cut yourself with, or anything of that nature. Everything was paper. And uh, we were all wearing the same thing. But the maestro, you see, when he would become this other personality, he would get very astute. His back would get straight, his shoulders would come up, cock his head in a certain way. He'd flip his tails because he thought he was wearing a tuxedo. He'd flip his tails and he'd start to march down to the day room. And we had this old piano down there that was out of tune. and. He'd walk down. As soon as the maestro gets straight, you could actually see this man change into this other personality. And when he'd become this other personality, everybody just kind of get in line behind him, and we'd march down to the day room, and everybody'd sit down, and he'd put on a concert until the little guys came in the white coats and put him in a white coat with his arms behind his back and took him away, you know, and that was our only entertainment in that hospital. Uh, nowadays, you get to go to the movies and bowling, and they have all these really neat things, you know, and you can bring your family in and introduce them, and, I mean, they just have all kinds of things that we didn't have then. Uh, and the other guy that I met, Mr. Arnold, um, he was just nuts, I don't know what his deal was, but he used to run around the hospital singing that song. None of you guys will remember this, maybe your mom and dad will. but. And He used to run around the hospital saying, "They're coming to take me away, ha ha! They're coming to take me away, ha!" It was a little song that was on the radio then, and and uh, real popular at that time. And um, he would walk around the hospital saying, "They're coming to take me away, ha ha!" And you know, we were still in lockup. They had different segments of lockup at that time. There was complete strip lockup, and that's where you have nothing. That's actual padded cell kind of lockup deal, shut down lockup, and uh, almost like jail or prison. And we were kind of still in lockup then, and um, myself and my husband were the only addicts in that hospital detoxing, and we were just in there with all those nuts. We hadn't realized that we were mentally insane, as though you know, as the book describes. Um, All I knew is that I I drank too much and I did too many drugs, and when I did that, I did strange and bizarre things and couldn't remember most of them. Um, You know, I had started having blackouts. Uh, real quick into my drinking and I I think it was because I had done so many chemicals you know it was just instant I went from like level one you know where you just socially drinking to uh, scumbag real quick and I think it was part of the, the drugs that did that. Um, <clears throat> my first blackout or my last blackout that's a better one my last blackout was one of those where uh I wasn't much really of a barroom drinker and I was a lover not you know not a fighter I uh, was involved in all the peace movements and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And they had this great big uh, plaza-type bar room in Houston called um, Uncle Sam's. And, and uh, it was a real hot spot in Houston. And I wasn't much of a drinker like that because I was pretty obnoxious. And um, I didn't like men to come and hit on me and offer to buy me a drink. I'd get real ugly and say, well, just give me the two bucks you know, and real crude things, um, and, you know, of course, that would eventually start a fight and then fight beyond and, you know, stuff like that. And what happened was, is I was up there and I was drinking and I was drinking wine and every time I drank wine, I got in trouble. Um, I finally quit drinking wine after this blackout. I decided I should never drink wine because that's what was causing me causing my problem. And uh, of course, I didn't realize alcohol alone was causing the problem. But we were up there and, you know, doing the deal, and I was standing there, as most drunks will, and I talked with my hands a lot, and I was waving, talking, drunk, drunk, drunk. And um, they had these little bitty round, they were like French tables, you know, French cafe tables, little small tables in there. And it was packed to the hilt, and I went to lean on the table and it dumped over, and it dumped the drinks, and there were several on this table, on this girl, and that's the last thing I remember. until. Some period of time later, I remember being on my hands and knees, crawling out of this bar, and there was a massive fight going on, and it was on, like, the penthouse. It was on the top floor of this big office building, and there were chairs flying and people screaming, and I was down on all fours, and there was this guy following me out, and we got out, and I wind up um, at his house. I had bits and pieces of that night. I must have been coming in and out of the blackout. I remember going to Anton's and getting a sub you know, and getting those greasy black olives. Ugh. And uh, drunk eating those greasy black olives was not a good idea. They don't come up as well as they go down. And um, <clears throat> and that's the last thing about drinking that night or anything. Now, bear in mind, I'm married and a wife and a mother of two children. And I'm sure some of you will <clears throat> relate to this, I uh, woke up and, you know, Before you actually wake up, you wake up. Before you open your eyes, you wake up. And, you know, your home and your significant other feels a certain way next to you and smells a certain way, your home, you know. And it was like a serious nose check. Uh, I'm not at home, was my first thought. And my next thing was, is I felt my own body and uh, I had no clothes on. And this person next to me did not have the same bumps in the right places. And uh, it was one of those kind of dates where you want to chew your arm off, like a coyote date, they call them, you know. You're to chew that arm off so you don't wake that person up next to you. You know, it's, it's, it was serious. Um, I eventually found my clothes and found my car keys and I got out of there. And I was in a section of town. I never considered myself a traveling drunk until I'd been sober for a while and realized that I traveled a lot when I was drinking. Uh, but I did it mostly in blackouts. I don't remember it a whole lot. Um, Anyway, getting back to the hospital, um, what happened in there was, you know, I eventually began, as birds of a feather, as the saying goes, I uh, eventually began to emulate some of these people in this hospital. Uh, I was becoming nuts with these people. I met some extremely strange and bizarre people in there. Mr. Arnold walked around singing that little song, and come in and take me away, haha. And, you know, one day he walked up to me, and I was about two days off of the stuff. You know, I cold-turkeyed in that hospital because I thought that's what I was supposed to do. And uh, he walked up to me one day after two or three weeks of saying, they're coming to take me away, ha ha. And um, <clears throat> he said, they're coming today. And it just blew my mind. I absolutely went crazy. And I talked the nurses into letting me out of the locked ward. I, I kept losing my privileges, and I'd wind up back in the locked ward because I was pretty vicious. I was a lot more vicious after I got sober without any chemicals than I was drunk, you know. Um, All I knew is that I couldn't drink anymore and I sure as hell didn't like any of y'all and I didn't like what they were doing to me at the hospital and I was scared to death and I didn't know how I was going to make it in the world and I was pretty vicious. And uh, so I I kept winding up back in lockup, you know, and so I talked the nurses into letting me out of lockup and they put me out on the open ward and uh, a few, I, I attempted to take my life out there on the open ward once. Um, given the same set of circumstances today, I'd make a different decision, but at that point in time in my life, based on the facts that were available to me, uh, I made the decision to take my life. And it, and it was a serious attempt. It wasn't a, you know, I want to scare somebody attempt. Um, I remember those feelings of being hopeless, helpless, and desperate, and those feelings of being hopeless, helpless, and desperate have returned off and on in my life. But I've never gotten that desperate since... Um, January 27th, 1973. Uh, 1974. Um, <clears throat> out there on the open ward, after a few other attempts on my life that were not my own, um, <clears throat> I you know, found in my blue jeans a quarter, like all those little miracles we hear around the program. I found a quarter and a phone number. And Carney Mary is, you know, or was well, very well known around Houston. She's an old Carney Barker who'd been sober 100 years, you know. She took our last drink at the Lord's Last Supper. Um, she she was a wonderful old lady, real crusty, real real crusty. She was one of those real crusty drunks and uh sober. She wasn't a whole lot better, cussed like a sailor, she was something else. But I just absolutely loved and adored her. And whenever my father would get too much for us to handle, uh, Carney Mary, we could call Carney Mary and she'd come pick him up and she'd take him down to the flop house and, and uh then after a while Carney opened this place called the Turning Point and, and at one point in time we um counted the number of people that are attempted to count the number of people that went through the turning point. And uh, there were like 7,500 people that had gone through the turning point and gotten sober and stayed sober through over uh, over the years that she had the turning point. But what happened was, is I called Carney Mary with that quarter and I said, my God, you've got to send somebody here to speak to me. I have got to get out of here, I'm going to die in this hospital. So Carney, knowing me the way she knew me and my father and my particular circumstances, knew that she'd have to send somebody kind of special there to see me, otherwise I was going to miss the message like so many of us do. And um, so she scoured the city, and she'd been around for a number of years then. And so, needless to say, she did know three or four young people that were, you know, um, attempting to stay clean and sober in the program. And she got in touch with Larry B., Kathy um, H., and Mike Y., and those are the three people that, uh, 12-stepped me. And I, I, I think my, my thing that I'm supposed to portray tonight is how I got here. And, um, this is it. This is the 12-step call that was made on me. At that time, uh, that was during the bell bottom years and the long hair and everybody kind of looked like the mod squad. And, um, <clears throat> that's what they looked like when they came to see me. And, and, um, Larry Brooke, uh, Larry B. was wearing a daishiki, and he didn't wear anything under his daishiki. He just wore a daishiki. He didn't wear shoes either. And, uh, I mean, the groups, the young people's groups in those days, the names of them were like the Natural High group, the Live and Kicking group, the White Trash group. You know, needless to say, we had a little bit of controversy going on in Alcoholics Anonymous. We had those real pure drunks, and then we had these new young people that were trying to infiltrate into the regular AA Young people were not even considered regular AA then. And uh, they didn't particularly care too much for us because we looked pretty bad, most of us. And, um, you know, we didn't wear shoes. And a lot of us were still painting flowers on our face. We were love children and real hippies, you know. We'd come to the meeting in, in masses. Uh, we never went alone. You were subject to be thrown out, you know, if you went alone. They didn't like our language either. Most of us hadn't learned how to... Uh, communicate without using profanity every third or fourth word. Uh, a lot of the guys had the really long hair before it was acceptable. A lot of things that are uh, common everyday things now were not then. And um, it was pretty tough overcoming a lot of that and gain uh, respectability in Alcoholics Anonymous, stability, uh, continuity. Those were the only things those old timers wanted for us, but you know we'd been so used to bucking establishment we thought they were trying to make us become um, little carbon copies of them, you know, and I didn't understand 30 years of liquid insanity and I didn't know who John Barleycorn was. So, you know, we would go to the meetings in mass forms and, and one of the, the old timers that became my sponsor at that time uh, made me go to the old 24-hour club and they didn't say, hi, how are you? And when you'd introduce yourself, you did say, my name is Ann, I'm an alcoholic. And everybody says, hi, Ann. They didn't do that. They didn't hold hands. Uh, they didn't hug. Uh, when they said the Lord's Prayer, none of that kind of stuff. Um, I love some of the changes that have taken place in Alcoholics Anonymous since I've been sober. Some of them also are very scary to me. But um, And I, I'm beginning to relate a little bit more with the fear that the old timers had when we started stringing through the door, you know, because some of you guys, let's face it, some of the guys coming in the program today are pretty scary. I spoke in Michigan at a conference here a while back, and that was the wildest group of kids I've ever seen in my entire life. They had one guy walking around the conference carrying a skull, and you know, my place in Alcoholics Anonymous today, and I mean, it was like didn't bother anybody. So I, I tried to maintain my sanity, you know, and, and not ask him why he was carrying the skull. It was obviously none of my business anyway. But, um, you know, and, and the mohawk haircuts, and I mean, there's some real strange things going on in the world today. And uh, I understand a little bit better today what those old timers were going through when we got sober. And with all of our anger, we were a real angry crowd, although we were preaching love. You know, we were a very angry crowd. Um, but, you know, we, we maintained, we stayed sober, we went to our little groups and eventually the old timers came to love us and came to understand that we were going to stay sober in spite of what they said. And uh, you know, we, a lot of us took on that attitude that, um, you know, I'm not going to uh, give you the benefit of allowing me to drink, you know, I'm going to stay sober just to make you mad. And uh, I'm coming back here next Thursday. And, you know, we'd show up just because they didn't want us to be there. And, you know, today I'm so grateful for that because I stayed sober uh, out of a resentment, you know. Uh, and I learned a lot from those old-timers because I'd intently listen to what they said. And I'd go home and I'd read the book. They'd say things like, they all they were big book thumpers then, you know, and they'd say, On page 32 the big book, and they'd quote it, you know. And I'd go home and I'd look on page 32, and I'd read on what it said on page 32. And if they were wrong, I'd go back next Thursday and tell them they were wrong, you know. <laughs> But, you know, we stayed sober, and they stayed sober, and eventually we were able to walk down that happy road of destiny together, you know. Today, I'm almost 40. Um, i got a couple of years left to go, but, um, you know, I'm scaring the hell out of 40 already, and now there's a whole new, um, new wave, new age group, you know, coming into Alcoholics Anonymous, and I believe that I'm the bridge. You know, I believe that my age group in Alcoholics Anonymous is the bridge. When I got sober, there wasn't a bridge, you know, we had to swim that river and it was hard. It was tough going for a long time. Uh, but today, due to growth from the old timers and due to us making it and due to those that came behind us, you know, and, and one step behind me or one day behind me, there's a buffer there now. And um, that's why it's so important to me to stay involved in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. From that 12-step call that, that was made on me by Mike Y., um, Kathy H. and Larry B., Kathy, Kathy came in wearing a pair of bell-bottoms that when she walked up the stairs, they were so wide that she would trip herself going up the stairs, and a velour blouse see-through with no bra. Um, and Jesus, what we call Jesus stompers back then, they were um, um, sandals that were made out of tire tread and laced all the way up to your hips. Uh, she had her hair, you know, stringing down and she had a wide, white belt, about this wide that had 3,000 holes all the way around it, you know, I mean, and, and the hip, the belt buckle came just above uh, the pubic hair, you know, I mean, it was right there. They were way down. You sit down and they'd almost slip off. Uh, Michael was a cleaned up speed freak and speed freaks see things in the recesses of their mind that we don't see and they neglect to tell us those things. They're real paranoid. And Mike had a huge afro, I mean it stuck way out here, and Mike would be sitting there talking to you and all of a sudden he'd go like that and he'd look, you know, and he'd see wisps of something that was going to get him, you know, and that hair would just wiggle and fly everywhere. <laughs> and um, me being a downer freak, me and Mike were like fire and water, you know, I, I, I never could understand him. And I, I think he had a really hard time understanding me too, but you know, we trudged along. And out of that group that got sober kind of together in Houston, most of us, out of the about 14 or 15 of us, I believe that 12 of us still have the same sobriety date. That's another thing I have a genuine problem with in Alcoholics Anonymous. They told me when I came here, it was never necessary for me to drink again. And I don't hear that enough in Alcoholics Anonymous today. It is not necessary for you to ever have to take a drink again. You know, I never drank again. I came through this door and I never relapsed. You know, I I hear so much about that. It just goes all over me. You know, I want you to know if you're sitting here today and this is the first time you've come to Alcoholics Anonymous, you never have to drink again. Your life can become something that you're not even capable of understanding right now. You know, you can't even fantasize in your head how wonderful your life can be. You know, that's where I was at in 1974. In 1974, if you'd have told me that my life was going to be as beautiful as it is today, and that I would have the miracles take place in my life that I've had, I would have called you a liar. I wasn't capable. I didn't have the knowledge. I didn't have the education. I didn't have the vocabulary to imagine my life as it is today. Um... Where am I standing as far as time goes? I'm over already, right? Okay. What happened, um, over a period of eight and a half years sober in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, I had to keep doing what I was doing until the pain exceeded the pleasure. You know? And in 1985, I had five deaths in my family. Uh, My father died in January. My mother died in April. Uh, my brother died in August, my sponsor died in June, and my, grandpa, my grandfather died in September. And what I learned from all, I spoke in Nashville at the International Conference um, right after all that happened, I mean in Chicago, right after all that happened, and I was like a piece of raw meat. But what I found out from that and, and what I've come to today, that's been five years ago or four and a half years ago now, what I've come to today is, is that pain is inevitable. Suffering is optional. My life is what I want it to be. My life is what I make it today. I'm in control of my destiny today. That's a real hard pill to take when you're sitting there and you're hurting and you're thinking, well, she don't know what she's talking about, you know, but it really is. If I'm having a bad day today, I'm choosing to have a bad day. It's my responsibility. You can't make me feel different. I'm the only one that can make me feel different today. Me and God. And see, God can't even make me feel different, because many, many times God gave me messages that I chose to not act on. Many, many times I came to you people you, torn up, full of fear and anger and hurt and resentment, and I said, make the pain go away. you know. And I'd pray to God, make the pain go away, and it never went away and it never went away until I took action on it, and I refused to allow it to control me. That's why I choose to believe today that I am in control of my destiny today. You are capable today of being anything that you want to be, and if nobody else has told you that, let me tell you that. I came into the program of Alcoholics Anonymous with a 10th grade education. I have two degrees on my wall today, and I'm fixing to go back to school again in the fall. You know, I went back to, back to school sober in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, twice, you know, and I completed that deal. I did that deal. I whined and cried and whined and cried to my sponsor and said, I don't have an education. And he said, well, go to school. So I went to school. I whined and cried when I'd see you guys driving new cars, you know, and I'd say, God, I want a Cadillac, you know. And my sponsor would look at me and say, well, get a job. You know, it never occurred to me that I had to do something to get the things that I wanted. I thought I could get sobriety through osmosis. And you can't do that. There's steps and things that you have to do, you know, step by step by step by step. This insides today would still be the insides of 1974 if I literally had not gone through each painful series of events in order to clear it away and take it out. You know, and then put something good back in there today. Um, life is so good to me. I, I work for a company called Recovery Line, and I deal with people that are, from every walk of life, from every form of life, with any kind of addiction. Our company doesn't handle just chemically addicted people. Uh, my life has been so dramatically touched by my work. Um... I see a lot of the hopelessness and the helplessness of what's going out there on the street and that kind of scares me, you know. Uh, my children, my son just got out of treatment. Um, he got his 30-day chip Thursday and I'm so proud of him. Um, he, both of my children graduated from high school. Do you know that's a, that's a major accomplishment for a parent today, to get your kids through school, you know. Um, those were major events in my life attending my kids' graduation. You know, um, I'm married to a wonderful man that puts up a, with a lot of crap out of me. Uh, I was telling people out in the lobby earlier, I'm going to be away from home more for the next four weeks than I'm going to be at home. And my people at my job are even tolerant of, of my speaking and my going here and my going there and my doing this and my doing that. And I mean, you know, I have met and shook hands. Now I'm, I'm a kid from the wrong side of the tracks. Okay. I've met and shook hands with two of the presidents of the United States. I have two degrees on my wall and fixing to get my third. Both of my children are semi normal kids. You know? Um, My husband is semi sane. It hasn't been necessary for me to snatch those kids and snatch those those suitcases and pillowcases stuffed full of last-minute clothes and throw them and the kids in the backseat of the car and while well, I'm just getting the hell out of here. You know? That had not been necessary for me for a long time. I'm a runner. When the pain exceeds the pleasure, I'm history. You know, that's the way I dealt with everything, and I had to continue to suffer that pain of how in the hell did I get in this mess again, God? Until one day He just said, "That's how you did it." You know, and my eyes were open. Just about everything I've ever learned, and I'm going to close with this: just about everything I've ever learned in Alcoholics Anonymous has be, has come through that moment of clarity that it, that occurs when we get sober. And you'll continue to have those moments of clarity, and continue to have them, and continue to have. Them. I thought I was having spiritual awakenings, you know. And I realized today that I've only had one spiritual awakening in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. And that's when I came to terms with a power greater than myself and I totally surrendered to God. And I said, this is your life. You just give me direction and tell me what you want me to do with it and I'm okay. And it quit. It ceased to be hard to work the program of Alcoholics Anonymous on that day. It ceased to be hard to live out there in the real world, be involved with PTA politics, city politics, you know, the real people. Uh, I am one of those real people. I pay taxes. I have to go to the PTA meeting. I have to go to the city council meetings. You know, I am one of those real people today. I'm a functioning, productive member of society today, and that's what this book teaches me to be. It doesn't want me to be crippled and handicapped in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. The deal is all about growth. That's what it's all about. It's all about change. Um, And I want to close with this prayer. (coughs) When things go wrong as they sometimes will, when the road you've trudged seems all uphill, when the funds are low and the debts are high, and you want to smile but you have to sigh, when care is pressing. Uh, Excuse me, when care is pressing you down a bit, rest if you must, but don't quit. Success is failure, turned upside out, inside out. The silver tint of the clouds of doubt, and you never can tell how close you are. It may be near when it seems afar, so stick to the fight when your heart is hit. It's when things go wrong that you mustn't quit. Just please don't leave until a miracle happens. Thank you.